Jonathan Edwards, a pastor, a theologian, and a brief president for one month before he died of Princeton University, has been quoted as saying, God's purpose for my life was that I have a passion for God's glory and that I have a passion for my joy in that glory and that these two things are one passion. The psalmist writes in 113, Praise the Lord, praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. I love this verse where the psalmist writes, The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens? Our God is so big and so great and so awesome, He is looking down on the heavens. There is nothing that exceeds our holy God. This morning begins a new sermon series entitled, How Great Is Our God? And to Derek's chagrin, the title of this sermon is also, How Great Is Our God? I think he was hoping I'd pick something else but I'm not that creative. And so we are going to be looking at, over the course of the next several weeks, the greatness of God. Because I'm convinced that the world, and even many, if not most, in the church, suffer from what I call little God syndrome. Trademark. Pending. The medical community doesn't accept this as a real condition. And many pastors might deny that it exists, but I believe it's 100% true that many of us suffer. In fact, I would dare to say that every one of us suffer, at least for seasons in our life, from little God syndrome. And by the way, when I speak of little God syndrome, I don't have G, the G capitalized, because the reality is that there is only one God and He's not little. I believe at times it's true in my life and my own life, and I actually would hesitate, I, I wouldn't hesitate to say that I'm afraid that it might be true more often than not, where I suffer from little God syndrome. Now, what is it? Little God syndrome is a condition or possibly a frame of mind that the God that we serve, we don't actually serve. But actually, He serves us. He's small enough to put in our pocket, only to be pulled out on Sundays or when we feel particularly spiritual. He's big enough to create us, but not big enough to sustain us. Therefore, we make a habit of sustaining ourselves, and we confuse giving Him glory with us receiving glory. 
and our worship is transactional at best. That's little God syndrome. It makes God a commodity to have and to use according to our will and not a God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, who we have been created to serve and to bring glory to and to love and to cherish and to hold high amongst all the things that we hold dear. John Piper, in a sermon to preachers several years ago, said something to this effect, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but this is what I got out of his statement. If you will not preach a big God, then don't preach at all. And I have to agree 100%. If you're going to preach, teach, or share a testimony for God, about God, but your God, little g, is little, I would rather you discuss something more substantial, like baseball or literature. Some would say, you've heard the adage that all news is, even bad news can be good news for some people, because you're in the news, if you will, right? You're in the news, you get notoriety, if you will, like any type of news is good for those who want notoriety. And some would say that just talking about God is good, even if you're not talking particularly well about Him. And I would disagree 100%. If you're not going to speak truthfully about who the God of our, who our God is, please do not speak about Him. He deserves more than our tiny, tiny views, false views of who he is. Uh, a friend of mine, a ministry friend of mine, several years ago now, made this bold claim. At the time, I thought it was bold, and honestly, it is. And he said this. He said, some individuals should not be given a Bible because they will use it, and they will use it poorly, and they will use it for their own glory, and they will end up using it, and it will end up defaming our God, instead of bringing Him glory. Now, at that time, I did not quite understand what he was talking about because I thought, well, no, everybody should give, be given a Bible, right? Everybody should be able to read and be able to share the Bible. But after being in the ministry for over 20 years now, I have seen God's Word and God Himself being used by humans in such a perverted, perverse in horrible way that I've come to the conclusion that if, if you can't speak rightly about our God, then please don't speak about Him. A little God is a powerless God, an impotent God. He's a pseudo-God. And our God is not powerless. But it does beg the question, how great is our God? How great is He? In order to truly worship God, we must first know Him in all of His glory. We must know Him in how He has revealed Himself to us. And so I'm going to look at two passages this morning, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. And we're going to talk briefly about these passages. Now, 
over the course of the next several weeks, these are going to be topical sermons, meaning we're not going to be walking through a particular book, but we're going to be looking at different aspects of God or attributes of God, and I'll describe that more here in a minute. <coughs> and so this morning serves as more of an introduction to this sermon series. And so I want to kind of get us in the right frame of mind before we begin talking about these things. And so as far as our Old Testament text this morning in Exodus, Moses, as he is fleeing from the Egyptians early in the book because he has killed someone in the book, and he's fleeing and he's gone to Midian, he approaches a burning bush, and the burning bush speaks to him. And this is from Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And in that passage, Moses asks this burning bush, who is speaking and instructing him, he asks, when I go back to my people and I tell them that this bush or that someone in this bush was speaking to me, who do I tell them who you are? What do I say? And Moses writes this, Then Moses said to God, If I come to my people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, and that's all in capitals implying Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, the name I am is the root of the proper name of God, Yahweh. And in fact, that name has so much power conveyed in it that many Jewish individuals even to this day, refuse to say it, nor will they even spell it. And in fact, when they write out the word God, G-O-D, they leave out the vowel, and they have just an underscore there representing that they want to acknowledge that they're speaking of God Almighty, but He is too powerful, too amazing to fully spell out His name. There's too much reverence there. I am who I am. That's the name that God gives himself. Now, we do not give ourselves names, right? We're born into this world, and our parents, being our parents, have the right to give us our names. Some of them for good. And some of them unfortunate. Poor Johnny Cash and the boy named Sue. But we do not have the authority to give ourselves our own names. Now, yes, you can go to the courthouse or wherever to the county clerk and change your name to, you know, whatever you want to change it to. But in reality, your name is your name, right? And sure, you can give yourself a nickname, but I mean, what really cool person in the world ever gave themselves their own cool nickname, right? But God names himself. Who has the right, who has the authority to give our God a name except for God himself? And when he chooses a name, 
What does he give himself? He simply says, I am who I am. Now, that's an odd name. That does not roll off the tongue. That's not like Buster or Theophilus or something like that. But Theophilus, Theophilus is in the Bible. Buster's not. Okay? But it's, it doesn't roll off the tongue. But for those who are inquiring, it has such power and meaning in it that there really isn't a name that would suffice for our God. What, what does it mean in his, in his sovereign, in his sovereign will? He has given himself the name I am. It is a name so powerful that it implies self-sufficiency and eternality, self-perpetuating awesomeness and glory. That's what it is. When God says, I am who I am, that means that I am. There is, it's not I was. Sure, he was. And he will be. But it implies that he always has been. There has never been a moment when God was not. He just is, I am. In fact, in the Greek, it implies an ego, if you will. It implies an ego when we look at it. God names himself. It implies that there is no beginning. There is no end with God. His name implies this. He does not require others to give him glory, to give him power, to give him meaning, to give him purpose. He exists in and of himself. I am who I am. In his sovereign wisdom, God has made himself known to his creation and to his people. He has revealed himself in nature, he has revealed himself in his word, and he has revealed himself most effectively through his son, Jesus the Christ. Those are the three ways that God has revealed himself, through nature, through his word, and through Jesus Christ. These revealed traits, or characteristics if you will, we often call attributes of God or the characteristics of God that help us experience Him. Now, most of us, many, go through life without ever discussing the attributes of God. When we, when we are asked, what is our God like, many will come up with a very similar answer that someone in the world might describe God as. But the reality is, He reveals Himself in a much different way than what the world would have. Some of these attributes cannot be communicated. They cannot be translated to us, if you will, or shared with us, and we call these incommunicable attributes. That's what the, these heady theologians call them incommunicable attributes. But others, other attributes which God does share with us as creatures made in His image, they're what we might call communicable attributes. 
They are attributes that He shares with us, He reveals to us, and in some ways, we also possess. One example would be morality. Our God is a moral God. And as creatures created in His image, we are moral creatures. We have a sense of morality. Even the heathen that's never experienced our God has a sense of morality. Why? Because He was created by God and that is an innate attribute of creatures made in God's image. As a church, as we are preparing for a new season as a congregation, I feel, and I hope that you do as well, that it's important that we begin with a right view of our God. And I think that's essential. See, these, these seasons in churches allow us to sort of recalibrate. And we're getting ready to move into a new facility, into a new community, new structures, all of these things. And it's a good time to recalibrate ourselves. And I believe that we ought to begin with a proper view of who our God is. Now, this is a common topic to talk and teach. I don't want to say common, but it's not uncommon to uh, teach in a Bible study, possibly even in a Sunday school, or maybe even some sort of literature group. This is not a common topic to preach about. It's just not, because it's sort of heady. But I don't believe that it's beyond us. And so with that said, over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to discuss these attributes that God has revealed to us. As a resource, we're going to be using God's Word. However, we're also going to get a little bit of help from two individuals, one named Herman Bavnik, a theologian in the mid-19th century, and as well as Wayne Grudem, a current theologian that's still alive today. And they have written extensively on this subject. And so I'm going to borrow from their work in order to be able to provide this information. But most properly, we're going to be going to the Lord's Word to find out where God reveals Himself and how God reveals Himself in these ways. We are not going to be able to exhaust every attribute. In fact, we're not going to be able to cover every attribute. It would take too long. I mean, how long really does it take to talk exhaustively about our God? I'd be in here forever until the Lord calls me home. But the ultimate goal is for us to have a more complete picture of who our God is so that we might be able to worship in, in spirit and in truth. And in this pursuit, this is what I would like to say to you, is that we're going to be able to find our joy, or at least that's my hope. Which leads me to my next point, and it's this. My aim, my hope, is that as we are walking through this Christian life and as we are pursuing this study on the attributes of God, it will cause each and every one of us to desire God more. And I believe that if we surveyed the church, and people would answer honestly, if we were to ask, do you desire God? Some individuals would not understand what that even means. And if they did understand what that means, they would probably have to say no. They like the status quo. John Piper writes... To enjoy Him, God, we must know Him. Seeing is savoring. If He remains a blurry, vague fog, we may be intrigued for a season, but we will not be stunned with joy as when the fog clears and you find yourself on the brink of some vast 
precipice. And this brings to mind uh, a moment uh, with me and Crystal. Uh, actually, two moments. One was as Crystal and I, Lucas was a very young baby, riding in the back seat, and it was about a 14-hour trip out to Oklahoma. And if any of you all have been out west in that area of out west, you know there's pretty much asphalt, dirt, and then nothing else. It's flat for as far as the eye can see. But then as we were driving, and I'd been out this way before, so this was not unusual, and I have to admit, I, take a, I, I have been very blessed in my life to see many really cool things, and so I take certain things for granted at times. And as we were driving out there, I noticed that Crystal was getting very excited about something. I don't know what it was, and she said, look, and out in the distance, these rock formations were popping up, but they were basically clouded by the, the fog and, the, and, the, and the, um, the, the atmosphere, if you will, but also by the curvature of the earth. I mean, when you go out west, you can see and experience the curvature of the earth. The earth is a sphere, okay? You can see it. And, but all of a sudden, as you come up over that curve, what happens? These rock formations are coming. And she got like, it was a new world. She had never been that far out west, and so it was a really neat experience. Another point, though, more specifically to this, is that we went to Las Vegas back in 2020 for a conference during the plague. And we got a hotel right in Las Vegas and uh, where my meeting was. And we had arrived late at night. And so it was dark. We didn't get to see anything. And then as the sun was rising, when you looked out of our hotel window, and we were pretty high, all of a sudden the mountains of Las Vegas were in view. The fog was fading and you got to see the mountains, right? And that's what it's like when we focus our attention on God for a prolonged period of time and, and pour ourselves over His Word and how He has revealed Himself. The world would have you believe in a God that is clouded in a fog, who's vague, who's not specific, and who's made in the world's image. But, the God, but our God has revealed Himself in creation, in His Word and through His Son, to be a mag majestic, holy, awesome God. And when we see that for the first time, it's like the fog is being lifted and this mighty mountain stands before us. One of my dreams, one of my goals, if you will, a bucket list item for me, <coughs> is to be in good enough health one day to be with me and my wife being able to hike to the base camp of the big mountain. Thank you, Mount Everest. Mount Everest. Cannot believe I forgot that right as I was getting ready to say. That's my goal. That's my goal. And it is so high that many times you cannot see the top of it because the peak is penetrating the clouds and you just can't see it. My goal is to see this majestic thing that God has created. But even that majestic peak doesn't even come close to comparing to how awesome our God is. So I'm at the base looking up at Mount Everest and cannot see the top. But God is looking down above the heavens on top of Mount Everest. 
Our God truly is an awesome, awesome God. And so I will argue this, that when I say that we are called to desire God, what I believe in many ways is that, is that we are called to enjoy Him and to be satisfied in Him and to be, to be satisfied and enjoy Him forever. Not just when we get into heaven, but now. That our desiring Him is a process of trying to enjoy Him to the maximum capacity that He has allowed us to be able to do so. And in part, we, in, in doing that, we have to at least know who He is. I will argue that if you do not enjoy God, then you do not truly know Him. Because to know God is to enjoy Him. I don't mean to say that if you don't enjoy Him or that you don't desire Him in the way that I'm describing, that doesn't mean that you're not necessarily saved. It does mean that you are very early on this adventure. And I would also say that you are missing out. How sad would it be for a brother or sister in Christ to be lying on their final deathbed and have to admit that they missed out on enjoying God. And all of us, to some extent, will wish, if we are believers, that we had enjoyed Him more, that we had desired Him more, that we knew Him more. What I mean is that when we say that we don't enjoy Him is that we do not know Him in a way that makes you want to sacrifice everything else in life to serve Him. See, and, and that's the thing, is that I believe that if we desired God in the way that He wants us to desire Him, we would struggle doing the mundane things of life. You know what I mean by that? If you ever, it's sort of like a, a child with a Christmas, and I don't want to make this a trite thing, but I'm trying to put it in, in a relationship that the kids would understand. That the kids, uh, Logan here, uh, just had a birthday. He's 15 now. And um, he, he uh, I, I know he's, he's older than you now, Drake. It, it happens. Um, and, and, Dre, and Logan got a virtual reality machine. Okay, now for those of you who do not know what that is, it's basically where you put goggles on and you're immersed in this video game world because we need more immersion in the video game world. And you immerse yourself in it and it's like you're really there, right? Now, I'm willing to bet that Logan, Logan, you enjoyed that gift, didn't you? Are you still enjoying that gift? Yes, you are. I'm sure there are times where you don't want to take those goggles off, right? I also know that the kiddos got these new electric dirt bikes because we needed another way to risk their lives. And every day I see them out there jumping hills and potholes and stuff without helmets sometimes. And I'm like, you're going to lose my tax credit if we're not careful. And they're, I mean, they're just out there, and they just can't get enough of it. 
they, they don't want to do their other stuff because they just want to be with the VRs or the electric dirt, and they're kids, and that's great. And adults, we have the same things, all right, where it's like, oh, well, those are kids. They're just immature. I'm like, no, we got our same things, all right, that we get, we get excited about something that we don't want to do anything else but, you know, fiddle with that, right? If we desired God in the way that he calls us to, be, to desire, take all the things that we think are wonderful in life, and we would want to put them away and just spend time with God. We would have a hard time going to work. Why would you want to go to work, no matter how much you love your job, why would you want to go to work when you can spend all your time experiencing the awesomeness of our God? Why would you want to play video games? I'm not criticizing you, Logan. But why would you want to play video games when you can experience the awesomeness of our God? Pastor, are you asking us to quit our jobs and to sell all of our video games and sit and pray and read the Bible and worship? No, because that's not what God's called us to do. God's called us to work. God's called us to be with our families. God's called us to be in the world, if you will. But there will be a day when we are in the presence of Christ and all of the things that we are doing are aimed to enjoy God more. Let me paint a different picture. What if by going to work, we enjoy God more? What if by being with our families, it causes us to enjoy God more? What if when we look upon our families, we see the fingerprints of our Creator in them and it causes us to praise Him even more? It's about changing our perspective when we realize that God has called us to be satisfied in Him and to enjoy Him more. To truly know God means to enjoy Him and to be satisfied in Him forever. How many of us especially in America, are just not satisfied with anything. We're just not content with anything. We get the biggest, baddest virtual reality video game, and a week later, what happens? They come out with a new one. And now Logan wants to put it to the side and get the new one. Logan, you got to go along with my sermon, man, or you're going to mess me up here. All right? I mean, but you, you get the idea. You get a brand new car. And the kids get in there and eat McDonald's, even though you told them not to. And that new car smell now smells like greasy chicken nuggets. And what do you want? A new car. We are so dissatisfied with everything. But God wants us to enjoy Him and to be satisfied in Him forever. John writes this says, Jesus, and this is talking to the Samaritan woman, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him 
will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's John 4, 13 through 14. John, the very image of the invisible God, tells us that he is the source of everlasting life, that he is the source of everlasting joy, and that he is the source of everlasting satisfaction. We do not get eternal joy and satisfaction or life from a little God. We get it from a big, almighty, gracious, merciful, glorious, majestic God. And if we are to enjoy God, this means that we must know Him. And if we are going to know Him, we have to understand Him. And that means that we need to know the very characteristics or the attributes that God has revealed to us. We want to know God, we want to know about God, we want to experience God in all of His majestic ways so that we can enjoy Him the way that He has commissioned us to enjoy Him. The more we understand His attributes, the more we can find joy in our Creator. So what are these attributes? I'm going to list these. I'm not going to go into great detail about these, but every sermon is going to be built around one of these attributes starting next week with the independence of God. So the first five are the incommunicable attributes. These are attributes that he does not share. Now, I don't mean that he doesn't reveal. What I mean is that he doesn't share with us. Okay, We might be made in his image, but we do not share these characteristics with God because we are not God. You'll understand as I talk about these. But the first attribute that we're going to look at is the independence of God. Our God is not dependent on anybody. Yet we are completely dependent on Him. We're going to look at the immutability of God. That's a weird word, right? The unchangeableness of God. Our God does not change. He does not change. The same God that said, let there be light, is the same God who is going to care for you when you are on death's doorstep. He doesn't change. We're going to look at the infinity or the eternality of God. In mathematics, we use the concept of infinity. We use that. And I actually believe that it's one of those things that mathematicians put in there because they needed somewhere to go and they couldn't go anywhere, so they just put that little symbol in there. Boop! Now we can keep on going. It makes all the math work out, right? The infinity of God. Because in reality, there is nothing infinite. Nothing infinite. Except God. The unity of God. The omnipresence of God. These are things that are attributed to God, but are not attributed to us. And we want to look at these because this is who our God is. But then we're going to look at these communicable attributes. Things that we do share with Him. The spirituality of God. We have spirits. We have spirits. The intellect of God. We have intelligence. We do not have omniscience. 
but we have intelligence. We have knowledge. The wisdom of God. God has blessed us with the ability to have wisdom. The morality of God. We are moral creatures. The righteousness, justice, and wrath of God. Communicable attributes that are shared with His created beings, those created in His image. The sovereignty and the will of God. And the perfection, blessedness, and glory of God. We're going to look at all of these attributes over the next several weeks to better define who our God is or to say this, how great is... We sing that song, How Great Is Our God, the splendor of the King, right? Clothed in majesty, let all the world rejoice. Let all the world rejoice. We sing that song, and it is a tremendous... I love that song. I love it. It's one of those songs that I can sing and sing and sing, and I don't know if I'll ever get sick of that song. But even that song is deficient. It's deficient because it cannot fully, what man-made song could, capture the greatness of of our God. So we are going to do our best and attempt to describe the greatness of our God in hopes that it increases our joy and our satisfaction in our God. My hope is, is that when we're done, that some of us at least will want to pray more, will want to serve more, will want to love more, will worship more, and enjoy God more in their lives. So I want to conclude this morning with that in mind. Enjoying God through prayer and worship. You see, I don't believe that it's my job as the pastor to just share knowledge so that you all will be more edified. I I believe there has to be some application here. And folks, I want to serve and lead a church that is passionate about prayer and is passionate about worship and passionate about service. And so I read this quote, and I, I laughed, and this is from his book, Desiring God, that John Piper wrote it, and I laughed out loud, and you understand why. He says, a prayerless, a prayerless Christian is like a bus driver trying alone to push his bus out of the rut because he doesn't know that Clark Kent is on board. And I laughed out loud, number one, because I am a huge Superman fan. But imagine, the, uh, get that image in your mind, you know, a bus gets in a ditch, can't get out of the ditch, so the bus driver goes outside by himself, and he's sitting there pushing this bus, trying to get it out of the, out of the ditch, and Clark Kent sitting on the bus just to be like, well, he could always ask, except for he doesn't know him, because he doesn't recognize him. When we refuse to pray, when we neglect our worship, we are neglecting and not recognizing the glory and the majesty of our God. I understand that at times it's difficult to pray when we believe that we are speaking to thin air. Let's just just face the truth. 
But there are times when we pray that we believe that we're just praying to thin air. Is there a God that actually is listening to me? And we believe that because we don't see an effect. We just finished the Harry Potter series for the umpteenth time. And whenever they cast a spell, something immediately comes out of that wand. And I believe that sometimes we treat prayer as if it's some sort of magical incantation. Confringo, Reparo, Nicio. That's not a real one, but I think it should be. Make people more nice. But but we believe that's how prayer, and that's not how prayer works. That's not how prayer works. It's also difficult to rely on or to depend on someone who we barely know, understand, and we can't enjoy. If you don't know God, if you're not enjoying God, then you're not going to pray to God. Or at least you will do so in limited capacity and it will be ineffectual at best. If you do not know Him, then by default, the God, little g, that you believe in will be small. And a small God is no God at all. So, like when Christ was going to that woman at the well, and when He was telling her that that water will soon cause you to be thirsty again. But the water that I give you is eternal. And you will always be satisfied. It is my desire that as a church that we would be so in tune with who our God is that it will cause us to enjoy Him and to be satisfied in Him. It will change the way that we raise our children. It will change the way in how we relate to our spouses. It will change the way we go to work or go to school. It will change the way in how we experience retirement. And it will change the way in how we worship. We serve a big, big God. And I want to be in a congregation that enjoys a big, big God. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to do that. We're going to look at how big, how awesome, how great is our God. And so I hope that you would enjoy join me in that. I hope that you might, even though we're in limbo right now, there is no reason why we can't invite guests to come be a part of this. I am making a commitment to post the sermons online immediately after church so that I do not wait two months and then forget what I said and when I said it and all of that. But in, invite individuals, invite family members to come and to 
one, hear about how awesome our God is, but then two, experience others worshiping a great and awesome God. And my hope is, is that that experience coming face to face with an almighty God will make everything else seem so pitiful in comparison. Would you pray? Father, thank you for your kindness to us as we have joined together this morning to worship. I wish that I had experienced how awesome you were earlier in life. So that my worship and prayer life and enjoyment and satisfaction in you had not been delayed. But Father, now, even now, I pray that you will continually expand and increase my satisfaction and my joy in you and that you would cause me to desire you more the more that I know you, know about you, so that I might be more like Christ in every facet of my life. Father, I pray for those in here especially our young people, that they would come to a, a point in their lives where they could experience the greatness of our God. And that you would impress upon them how mighty you are. Lord, I am so thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the cross. And I'm thankful for your mercy. As we close out this service, Father, I pray that in these last few moments that we would focus in, sing this song as if we're singing directly to you. And that today we might begin this journey together to, to know you more in order to enjoy you more, to be more satisfied in you. Father, we thank you and we love you and we do give you all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me?